Flux Research's Sustainable Innovation Podcast, Innovation Matters. It is the only podcast that is able to successfully navigate the Zencaster interface um, <laughs> and, re- and record. <laughs> I'm Anthony Schiavo, I'm Senior Director at Lux. I'm joined by my colleagues, uh, Kartik and Mike. Kartik, how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks. Uh, this weekend, we have had a lot of stuff happening. You know, uh, India landed on the moon. Burna Boy released his new album. Excited to listen to that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, good <laughs> Two things. events of equal importance in, uh, I think, the Absolutely. global geopolitical landscape. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mike, how are you? Doing well. Enjoying enjoying the lack of heat wave in, in New York this week. It's been like highs of 75 and stuff after it's been god-awful hot all summer, so. Yeah, Climate still, wasn't. but at least we're, you know, we're doing okay for this week. <laughs> if it wasn't <laughs> raining here in Boston, it would be super nice. Um, we have a ton of news, a ton of things to talk through this time. So I think we should get right into it. Um, I want to start with a, a recent announcement from the U.S. here. Uh, the U.S. DOE, the Department of Energy, has announced $1.2 billion in funding for direct air capture hubs, the first direct air capture hubs in the United States. So if you're not aware, direct air capture, that is direct air capture of carbon dioxide. The idea is we're going to take a big vacuum cleaner, we're going to point it up into the air, and we're going to suck all the carbon emissions out of the atmosphere. Um, DAC, I mean, it's, it's one of the more controversial sustainable innovation technologies for a number of reasons. Um, It's controversial, I think, because there are a lot of people just saying it won't work, um, that it's kind of a fake technology or a a fake solution. The costs of DAC are notoriously much, much higher than uh, the costs of, say, point source carbon capture. And there's also a lot of, I think, concern that this is a, a greenwashing effort by large oil and gas companies in particular. And, you know, we see that this first hub, um, Occidental Petroleum, is one of the um, sort of the recipients of this this work, or this funding, I should say. And, you know, in general, this is a technology that oil and gas companies have, you know, invested in fairly significantly. On the other hand, we do need to get carbon out of the atmosphere, as I think the <laughs> this summer shows uh, the, the impacts of this are, are are pretty real. So I'll kick it over to you, Mike, first and, and ask you what your reaction is to this, uh, this news and just how, how are you thinking about DAC in general? I'm thinking about DAC in, in, in general as something I think it's really important to be pursuing. Um, it's very, I think it's still unclear to me, what kind of role it's going to play in the the future of the, you know, the energy transition and the climate solution here. Um, if it really is, which is, you know, this is the, the reason this project is, I mean, I think the risks, the risk behind it, right? Great to move, remove carbon from the atmosphere. The risks are, it's just going to give people a permission to keep emitting because they will, you know, be able to say these emissions are being offset, which is which is true. But we need we need to be really doing both, like cutting the emissions and taking the carbon out of the air, not not either or. 
And uh, I think Occidental's CEO has even made some some comments about, you know, oh, this is what's going this this gives our industry a license to continue to operate for the 60, 70, 80 years. Mm-hmm. Um, a license was, to continue was a quote from the <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, and then the other, of course, like the question of what are you doing with the carbon dioxide and what what Occidental is doing with the carbon dioxide is using it for enhanced oil recovery. They are injecting it into oil wells in order to get more oil out of them, right? Drill, so, baby, drill. <laughs> so that's obviously not, you know, particularly in service of transitioning the economy um, away from fossil fuels. Um, you know, there's obviously a case for it. Uh, as far as, you know, we are going to continue to need oil for the, the foreseeable future, uh, at least in, you know, for the next in, in some quantities for plastics, for fuels. And, you know, it, we aren't um, going to transition away from it next year. And if we're going to be producing some amount of oil, it's, you know, better to sequester carbon while we're doing it than than not. But I do think the, the worries that this uh, kind of approach can slow the overall momentum for decarbonization or not, are not totally unfounded either. Yeah. For me, I think, uh, I don't cover DAC so much, but, uh, uh, we, uh, of course get a lot of questions at Lux research on DAC and our analyst Mukunda has a very good technology hub on it, which of course our client should be reading if they haven't, uh, and, you know, I think the cost of DAC is something that caught my eye when I was just going through what we have, um, specifically looking at the fact that you need significantly low cost renewable electricity. So I think the price of DAC is one of the reasons why it's not, you know, taken, let's say, or, or to rephrase, I think that's one of the reasons why people are still against DAC. I guess it's the costs more than whether it can successfully capture carbon, I guess. Would I be fair in that assessment? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an an economic question as well as the sort of, you know, climate system questions that I was was talking about. Is this just going to be an expensive boondoggle is not entirely clear yet if that's that's false. I think it will be an expensive boondoggle. I'm I'm all in on DAC being a friggin' boondoggle. I'll I'll, I'll be real with y'all right now. I mean, I, I basically think that we have a very clear cost curve that we can move down in terms of investing in things to capture carbon. And I, I don't think there's a particular, you know, there's this argument that we need carbon removal from the atmosphere in addition to carbon emissions reduction. But until we run out of sources of emissions reduction, we, I, I don't think that's actually true, right? Um, removing a ton of carbon from the atmosphere is just as valuable as preventing a ton of carbon emissions from going into the atmosphere today, in my view. And we can do the prevention for $100 a ton or less, right? In the case of switching from, you know, for example, coal to renewables, you know, or putting carbon capture on various industrial facilities. Mm -hmm. Like there's a ton of options. And DAC is like $800 a ton, like you kind of mentioned, Kartik. And it doesn't make any sense. Like we could spend a billion dollars here on investing in early stage geothermal, right? I think (laughs) as our our guest (laughs) later on this uh, (laughs) 
later on in this podcast would definitely appreciate. Um, so there's so much we can do with a billion dollars. Like a billion dollars is a lot of money, right? I'm much more sympathetic to this type of early stage activity if it's R&D level, right? The fusion stuff, um, if, it, if it's really high potential. Um, and I don't see DAC as being high potential. I mean, you're still going to be paying a lot of money to remove carbon dioxide, even in a very positive case. And I don't, you know, there's just so much better things we could be doing with our money. And I'm um, also, I don't know. Go ahead, Carter. Yeah, yeah I, I was just thinking maybe if it's high potential or not, I would still call it high potential. I, I, I was just thinking about Greta Thunberg's uh, The Climate Book, in which she actually plans, uh, she paints a very gloomy picture of what's going to happen. And I think uh, in her book, or, or what my understanding of what's provided in the first few case studies is that, you know, you've got to stop emitting carbon today and keep capturing carbon out of the atmosphere as much as you can. And only then you have a better chance of, you know, actually hitting net zero. And if you want to think about, let's say, if you were to get one wish to do that, and I guess you would take the direct air capture wish, wouldn't you, at this stage? So I think it's a bit harsh to say DAC is not high potential. (laughs) No, I'm a hater. I'm a hater. It's (laughs) it's just the the politics of the technology are bad too, right? Like you already heard the Occidental CEO say, this is a license to emit, right? And I think it's a questionable role of the oil and gas companies in the energy transition anyway. I think they need to have a very, very carefully considered role at the very least, right? In terms of yeah. how mm-hmm. they should be allowed to play and how they should be allowed to benefit. And um, I think if you have a technology that's that says, hey, we can keep drilling, like, <laughs> like that's a bad technology. We need to stop drilling, you know? Like, well, but, but it's the politics of it. I mean, that's it's it's a bad technology for sort of the climate math, but it's it's a good technology for the politics, at least in the U.S. It, it makes it a lot easier to get to get buy in from all the political stakeholders you'd, you'd want to have buy in for, um, you know, so I. I, I, I'm not really a big fan of this project. I'm I'm not as much of a hater on um, on DAC in in general. I think there is a role for that to play in you know helping to keep and ultimately bring down carbon levels in the atmosphere in the longer term. But this this project is not really ideally the way you not really the ideally the way you'd want to go about it. But I do understand the political calculus behind. You know, this is a way to get support for stuff like for the IRA in general, and to um, to try to accelerate that you know learning curve and, and cost reduction for 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 DAC for the future. You know, it is a good way to reduce carbon emissions: putting sails on boats. And that's our second news item. Kartik, do you want to introduce <laughs> uh, introduce our audience to what is it? Pixis. What's going yes. on here? So uh, Mitsubishi Corporation, um, along with three other companies, including Kaggle, they have uh, essentially installed these massive metal sails. Uh, they're about 37.5 meters tall on the ship called the Pixis Ocean. It's a, it's a commercial maritime vessel. And the objective is to essentially go back to the past uh, to <laughs> decarbonize shipping in a way. Uh, so these uh, masts, you know, they have flaps. They're essentially aerofoils and you can turn them, you can fold them. 
based on when you want to use them. And essentially you decarbonize shipping by using a mast. It's uh, sounds pretty boring from the outside. I mean, it's like, hey, you just have a tall metal structure. But I see a lot of positives from this genuinely. Uh, but, you know, your thoughts first on what you think about this development. Yeah, I think it's a, about a 30% emissions reduction that they're targeting. I'm, I'm, I love this. This is great. I love it because it's dorky, you know. Uh, it looks really, really, really goofy. <laughs> yeah, um, indeed. Because it's basically a big vertical wing. Like, it really <laughs> is a wing in, in that sense, uh, or a combination of wings on the, on the ship. Um, but, yeah, it's good. I mean, there's so much wind energy in the specifically like the lower lower hemisphere right if you think about that band of sort of connected ocean there there's a reason why when uh my dad's a big sailboat racer and he uh you know when, when they race sailboats around the world they go straight south they catch that wind and they go all the way around the globe <laughs> as fast as they can <laughs> because mm-hmm. there's just so much power there and so you know there's just a lot there's a lot of energy out there that we could be capturing right and um like I said, this actually does reduce emissions. I don't know. Maybe I'm a maybe I'm missing something here, but everyone I feel like was clowning on this, and I thought it just made sense. I mean, shipping emissions I think are equivalent to the eighth or ninth largest country in the world yeah. mm-hmm. in terms of total yeah, emissions. So th- yeah, yeah, it's, it's a big, huge yeah. deal. <laughs> Mike, what do you think about? Yeah, it's, that? it's definitely you know it's definitely an incremental solution, right? You're not. It, but you know, sure. it, it's a big increment, right? What did you say it was? 20, 30%. So 20, 30%. Uh, and you can combine it. The thing is you can combine it with anything, right? Exactly. It's, it's yeah, a sale it's on a boat. Sort of complimentary, you know? Yeah. It's very it's, complimentary. Uh, yeah. I used to, uh, you know, do this whole riff about, um, you know, in, in the, kind of the earlier years before electric vehicles were maybe the, the, the dominant solution, clearly dominant solution for, um, uh, for vehicle emissions reduction that, that, that they are today talk about, you know, electric vehicles, hydrogen vehicles, um, uh, biofuels, right. You can say, well, regardless of which one of these solutions you think is going to win out, like things like tribological coatings or things that are going to improve the efficiency of, of the car are, you know, going to be really useful regardless. And I think that's the case here, whether you think we're going to, you know, go with ammonia or methanol or, or, whatever for for decarbonizing shipping like putting these weird looking sails on the top is actually um a pretty good idea i mean if those especially if those kind of savings numbers really prove out in um in these commercial deployments didn't that like turn out not to be true though <laughs> with the triplological coatings <laughs> like <laughs> uh, you know the triplological code it's, it's it wasn't as big an impact as some people might have <laughs> thought it could but you know if you, you can improve the the you know reduce the losses to friction that's you know that's always good yeah the the interesting aspect of the sales for me is it's so cost effective and it's such a short-term solution for anyone who owns uh shipping assets and they want to decarbonize uh Maybe the implementation could be a bit challenging because if you look at the pictures, the masts are actually installed on one side of the ship because you don't want it to be in the line in, line of sight. Uh, uh, so at the end of the day, you might need counterbalances on one side to prevent the ship from you know being unbalanced, stuff like that. Uh, it's also possible because the, the masts are using fiberglass and steel uh, and it is a composite blade. Uh, 
uh, I think people will start questioning, oh, if this is green enough, you need to start recycling and all that. So I guess there might be a little bit of issues there. But at the end of the day, if you were to score it, you know, in terms of how positive this is, it's a pretty positive development for me. All right. This is a perhaps the first Innovation Matters approved technology uh, <laughs> official. Universal official approval rating. With the, yeah. Yeah. the official Innovation Matters seal of approval here. Um, let's talk about something that may or may not get the official Innovation Matters seal of <laughs> approval. Um, that's Moff GPT. What, what, what is this, Mike? You, you brought this up. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting because, you know, there's, of course, since since the launch of ChatGPT, we've been getting a ton of questions and thinking a lot about what are the implications of this for for innovation and for, you know, for R&D and research. And there was a really kind of interesting implementation of that that uh, that published that um, that came out in a paper this week out of um, Omar Yagi's group at Berkeley. He's one of the kind of leading experts in synthesis of metal organic frameworks or MOFs, which have a lot of, you know, relevant climate relevant and other applications. They could be used for direct air capture. They can be used for other types of carbon capture. They can be used for absorbing water out of the air uh, for hydrogen storage. Um, you know, so a lot of interesting applications for this, this class of highly porous uh, materials, essentially. Uh, but they're really difficult and really expensive to synthesize. Uh, and what he, his group worked out is a way to to do some prompt engineering with ChatGPT to make it apparently pretty good at suggesting um, synthesis conditions or outputs from synthesis conditions for for a bunch of different um, MOF uh, compositions. Uh, it's attractive because you know you can do if you can just do this with ChatGPT, you don't need somebody who knows has a lot of coding skills in order to um, to succeed at it. But the thought of it, the part of it that was interesting to me is the, the prompt engineering. And that's, it's a term of art now in, in, in working with these kind of large language models is you have to pose the question to it in sort of just the right way uh, to get the right results. And in particular, these models have a tendency to what's, what's called uh, what they what you know researchers call hallucinate like if you try to give them something Making stuff up and just make stuff up and there's funny examples there's even like a, a legal one where these lawyers got chat oh my god to write a legal brief for them and it um it you made know, up it, a bunch which, of citations it made up a bunch of citations right? if you do a legal brief you say yes my site you know my my interpretation here is supported by the you know fourth district circuits courts ruling in you know, whatever, you know, Mackenzie versus Velasquez, 1997 or whatever. And so it put a bunch of these things in that were just completely fake cases, like totally made up. Because um, uh, it's just trying to, to come up with something that, that fits the pattern. It doesn't understand like which parts of it, you know, need to be novel. And, well, and, it, or, and then the or guy went be... back, the judge asked <laughs> him, like, what are your sources? And the guy went back to ChatGPT and asked ChatGPT, what are your sources? And it just like invented a bunch of sources for him. Yeah, it like completely the wrote judge. the whole like really. Yeah, you could sort yeah. of uh, double, double down on it itself too. So oh, it's a very right. funny story. But the, it can do this too. Like it's, you know, if you if it doesn't have a basically a good answer um, from the sources it's supposed to be using, it will just kind of make one up to to, to sort of fit whatever it thinks is, uh, is missing. Um, and it, I was actually asked, I was talking to a client in the, uh, 
in the office a couple of days ago is a CTO at a at a uh, at a specialty chemical company, and he was he was asking about this. It's like, how big of a problem is this this sort of hallucination behavior with these large language models? It's like, well, actually, if they like, according to these researchers, for MOFs at least, it was a pretty significant problem that they needed to try to kind of engineer their their way around. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple interesting things here, right? Because one, there's the issue of hallucination in and of itself and the fact that it seems really difficult to get these ml you know gpt models to stop lying in general or making stuff up right like <laughs> there that's really really um going to be a limiting factor i think in, in a lot of use cases especially a lot of the academic and the more scientific use cases right and i think it also sh- kind of puts into contrast the programming use cases because the programming if, if the code doesn't work the code doesn't work and it's it's actually really straightforward to like understand it, it's so like out, outcome driven um that it's like fairly sort of easy to navigate around these these types of issues and there's so much data and like innovation and like structure in the back end that you can be relatively confident that the thing is going to work the way you want it to work um you know my buddies who are programmers tell me that like the tools that are already developed are like insanely useful and, and really changing the game there but for something like this where i mean if you're just researching new moth types and it doesn't work i mean it costs you a little time but it's it's not that big a deal but Graduate student time is very, very cheap and worthless. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. This is undeniably true. Uh, But, you know, if if you're asking it, hey, is there something like out there that we're missing in terms of like some approach or for like drug development or any of these things? It's like, you know, the fact that it's it's you can't trust it is really to me. It's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big. uh, I don't know. Point of failure. Right. yeah, I, I actually didn't know that prompt engineering would be a job or an occupation at some stage. I thought, you know, you could just tab, you know, type a question and then it's going to give you an answer. Right? But uh, unfortunately, it it's so not much. a straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It's so painful. It's it's a skill uh, that people will need. And, uh, you know, I think this this paper is sort of, it's a, optimistic in that it, it does show ways that you can make these tools useful and I, you know, they'll continue to improve. They'll, they'll probably get better at the hallucinating, um, you know, just the underlying models will get better at avoiding this hallucination behavior. But yeah, people are going to have to, you know, it, it's not quite as simple as, um, you know, even if you're not a programmer, you can just ask it questions in normal language and like, yes, you can, but you need to know how to do that kind of like in just the right way to make sure it's not going to, um, uh, to give you something that's that's bad and fake. Well, if ChatGPT turns out to be the research tool of the future, you will undoubtedly hear about it here on the Innovation Matters podcast. We're now going to go to our next section. We have a great interview all about geothermal. So we'll leave it there. Hello, welcome back, and we're delighted to be joined by Jim Hollis. He is the COO of Geothermal Technologies. 
his long background, long history working in seismic imaging, and now uh, in his most recent venture is working on geothermal energy. It's something that we've discussed a couple times on the podcast already, and we are really excited to have Jim uh, here with us to, to chat more about geothermal and really the future direction of this space. So, Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on here. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Why don't we start, maybe you can uh, give a bit more complete introduction about uh, yourself, but also geothermal technologies, sure. what it is and, and yeah. what the company does. Yeah, so my background, I'm a geophysicist. Um, uh, I very much have been focused on the technologies needed to explore for different resources, be it oil and gas or mining. Uh, and for the last uh, five years, I've been focused on geothermal because it's just this amazing power source that we have. I mean, we're living on a planet that is this giant battery. The uh, center of the earth is actually hotter than the face of the sun. So, and that heat uh, was formed when the planet was formed, but it's also the radioactive decay um, and, uh, and it's um, super hot. So how do we tap into uh, that heat and make power that's uh, clean, carbon-free, baseload, all the things that we need. Um, and that's what we've been focused on. So the company was actually spun out of Johns Hopkins uh, about five years back. Uh, they had been working on uh, ways to harvest this power. And uh, we were, uh, myself and the CEO were brought in to commercialize it. And so we were working hard on, on that. And we came out of stealth mode about 12 months back um, where we're out getting ready to build our first system actually in the Denver area. And, uh, and so that's a little background. Maybe since you mentioned it, a good place to start, this is, you know, the innovation matters podcast. And mm. one of the things we're interested in is the kind of the sausage of innovation getting made. Yeah. So what was that process like when you were sort of at the very early stages? Did they reach out to you? Did you reach out to them? How did the combination of the founding team and the technology come together? And yeah, was that process smooth? Was it bumpy? How, how, would you, how would you sort of describe that process? Yeah, I, I thought it was fairly smooth. I mean, um, the, uh, the technology um, was uh, envisioned by this guy by the name of Dr. Bruce Marsh. And he's a uh, Renaissance geoscientist extraordinaire. And, uh, and he and a, a group of other scientists were really worried about climate change and, and how do we tap into geothermal? And they had spent a lot of time looking at all of the efforts um, that uh, had been gone into by the DOE and others of uh, going after this power. And, and he basically came to the answer that one of the things that was missing was convection, which is a really super good way to transfer heat. And to have that, you needed to go after fluid and so let's go after the fluid that sits at the bottom of oil and gas basins. Um, so he had all, all this, but he didn't really have a way to commercialize it. So um, I was invited in um, via my network. They knew that I was had done startups and I've run big businesses and, and things like this. Um, and I was brought in um, at the same time as the CEO, uh, who is there now, we were both brought in to run the company and we ended up finding that we had synergies and we decided to do it as a team. And so it was pretty straightforward. Uh, we 
built the business. We launched it. Uh, we raised seed funding. Uh, we're in the process of raising our, our third round right now. Um, but um, both of us had done startups, so it was pretty clear the path that we had to take. And um, and so it, it was fairly smooth, actually. And uh, and so that's how we got here. It's interesting you mentioned convection because uh, typical geothermal is usually passing a working fluid over hot rock and then you just take the heat out. And if you think about geothermal as a technology, people yeah. just go, okay, you drill into the ground, you have <laughs> this hot, you know, as you mentioned, the earth is a giant battery. You just access this heat, you produce steam, the steam runs a turbine, electricity, boom. And so from the outset, it, it looks like, well, it's geothermal has no <laughs> innovations. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, well, um, yeah, but it's a little bit more complicated. Everything's a little bit more complicated. Than of course. It so, so let's take a huge step back and say all, all the geothermal power that's being generated right now, um, which is about seven, 17 gigawatts, comes from natural systems. And these natural systems are in very unique geologic areas. Now, like um, uh, the geysers field in, in California, Hawaii, Iceland. Um, and if you take a step back and you look at those systems, uh, they're made of three things. There's a heat source. Um, there's a, a fluid, which is the mechanism to transfer that heat from deep in the ground to the surface. And there's a plumbing system. And so um, there is a big group out there who are looking at this geothermal anywhere, hot, dry rock. Like you say, you just drill into the earth until it's hot, you pour water down there, you bring it up, you make steam, there you go. The problem is rock is a conductor. So when you pour cold water on hot rock, it cools it off. I'm sorry, it's insulator. And, uh, and so you cool it off. So if you're going to be mining that energy from that rock and the um, and the heat transfer mechanism is conduction, like an electric stove, um, that cold water will cool that rock off and it'll take geologic time to heat it back up. So the trick is, um, how do you mine that energy? Um, how do you build a plumbing system that doesn't cool the rock off? And so what we found is that's it, instead of just drilling into hot rock, that's the heat source. And then you build a plumbing system and you add water. We're saying, let's go after um, a existing reservoir of hot water um, and just build the plumbing system. So it simplifies and de-risks the whole thing. And core to the technology that we have is we figured out if we build the plumbing system right, we can generate a convective recharge field that makes these things last for decades. They don't cool off. We're just mining this hot water that has been sitting down there. And, um, and, and because you're um, mining this for decades, you get to depreciate the cost of, of building these things and it brings the cost of power way down. And so it's, I've always liked stuff that's better, faster and cheaper. And, uh, and this checks all the boxes. And so that's what's different kind of about what we're doing versus the normal um, experimental uh, stuff that's going on with the DOE now in this hot, dry rock area. Can, can you touch on the costs a little bit more in detail? Because I think one of the sort of 
common pieces of perception around geothermal is that it's really high upfront cost. And, um, and I know there's, there's a lot of different approaches. So how are these innovations tackling this, this issue of cost or bringing that cost down? Yeah. So, so, um, there's upfront costs in how you build the below ground system. So that's drilling and, Mm -hmm. um, things they do in the oil and, and gas business. And then there's the upfront cost of the power plant, which is the above ground. And that's the organic ranking systems and things like that. Um, the above ground power plant doesn't cost any more than a coal plant or a gas plant or all, all those sorts of things with the added benefit that there's no cost of fuel. So the trick is, is to, um, is to cost effectively build the underground part and kind of why now with what we're doing is that we're leveraging all of these advancements that the oil and gas guys have made in lateral drilling and completions associated with these shale plays um, that have brought the cost of drilling and the time of drilling down in a significant way. And so uh, that's brought the cost of the below ground down. And again, the entire system, because it lasts so long, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, even if you depreciate it over 10 years or five years, you're still making money at costs of power similar to coal, right? So it's, it's a, uh, and it's green and it's base load um, and it's sustainable. I mean, the earth is cooling off five degrees every billion years. Um, so that battery's not gonna run out, right? <laughs> so it's, and so the innovations, you know, that, that in my mind are behind kind of why now mm-hmm. it's three major things. So one is the ability to make power from cooler water. So this is these or- organic rank and style binary, binary style sort of power plant systems where you cycle an organic fluid above the ground in a closed system. And that organic fluid might boil instead of 100C like water, it might boil at 75C. So you can make power from a from cooler water. So that's key. We don't need the ultra hot Yellowstone bubbling stuff, right? Um, the the second thing are these innovations in uh, the technologies uh, that the oil and gas guys have, both in drilling these lateral wells very quickly. You, you can drill a two mile down vertical, one mile horizontal well uh, in the Denver basin uh, in under six days, right? So that cost is coming wow. way down. Yeah. Um, and it's not only the technologies in drilling, but it's the seismic that we can use to figure out what the permeability of these aquifers are and all, all that sort of stuff. So, so we get to use that. Plus we get to use uh, billions of dollars worth of oil and gas data that give us the geologic information that we need for free. <laughs> so, you know, but the third thing is machine learning and the cloud. We can take an enormous amount of data, uh, access major amount of C- CPU and help to de-risk what the geology is doing uh, by scraping all, all that data and, and integrating it and figuring out where these sweet spots are. So that's kind of, that's really interesting because I think I think if you had asked me before this conversation, I would have said, "Yeah, you know, there's been this shale revolution. There's been all these technologies developed." Yeah. Um, but I wasn't aware about the, the the data aspect or the cloud aspect, and I think that's one of the things you hear a lot. You know, you see these headlines of like 
I, I think I saw a headline today that was like, company raises $50 million to extract uh, lithium with AI. And I was like, you know, joking around, like, yeah, they're going to do linear algebra <laughs> until, until the AI like precipitates out, right? <laughs> it's just going to do it. But, you know, it's interesting to hear you say, like, actually, this this sort of big data thing is is really important. Can, can you just talk a little bit more about um, how that's being used to, to de-risk these operations and what, yeah. the are, what the opportunities are? Yeah, so, so um, there's two places where we're using it. One is... Um, is uh, looking across an enormous amount of data that's been generated by going after the oil and gas. So, so there's the oil and gas window, uh, say, in the Denver Basin, where they're extracting oil and gas. We're below that. We're in, in this hot, briny aquifer uh, that sits below the, the hydrocarbon window. But we get to use um, not only all the information they've used to understand the structure and the geology for the oil and gas window, the um, there's actually data down where we're looking because that's where wastewater is injected. And so uh, there's a lot known about the geology down there. And so, so we scrape all this data. It's available both publicly because uh, when an oil and, and gas company drills um, an oil well, that data gets uploaded into a database uh, that the public gets to see. So we can scrape it from there, but we also have partners uh, in the oil and gas world who are very interested in the, uh, the power that we would generate to help electrify their fields and go net zero as fast as they can. So there's a, there's a real kind of synergistic relationship with the oil and gas op- operators. And, um, and so, so we take all of that data, it's an enormous amount of data, and we look for patterns um, that um, where we have, say, a, a borehole, we can say that the, the, the permeability is this and the fractures look like this and this is a sweet spot. Let's use all this other data to extrapolate it. And, and that is a super powerful application of, uh, of machine learning for us. Um, we're also looking um, at some of these large language model things where we can go out and scrape um, different papers that have been written about different things in geology. For, for instance, we're looking at um, a place in Africa right now where there's not a whole lot of oil and gas operations, but there's lots of research papers that have been written that are estimating what they think that the geothermal gradient is, uh, you know, how hot, at what depth, and aquifers and the permeability and all the stuff that we need. And it's really hard to just kind of sift through that stuff. But if, uh, if you can have AI helping you um, and chasing down not only the key information, those papers, but the references, that's super helpful as well. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting you talk about the extrapolation aspect. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel that when you talk about geothermal in general, as you mentioned with conventional geothermal, it's geographically restrained. You can't tap it everywhere, right? Um, so do you see these innovations in geothermal pushing that boundary to say, you know what, we can access geothermal universally, maybe? Yeah, that's a great point. So so we're right in the middle between um, the uh, small amount of geographic locations where conventional geothermal works and these guys that say that geothermal anywhere. Because so, so we're more like, yeah, we can scale this in an enormous way. 
pretty much any place where you're extracting oil and gas, it means that there's a basin and there's heat because that's how the oil and gas formed and there's one of these aquifers. So if you take a map, say, of the U.S. and see Colorado, Oklahoma, Texas, California, you know, um, those are all candidates for uh, this hot sedimentary aquifer approach that we're doing. With that said, it won't allow you to do geothermal power everywhere, you know, it's, but it's going to sure open up and scale um, geothermal power where it's being generated now uh, at least an order of magnitude or more just because, uh, and, and what's wonderful about these things is we know the heat's there because the oil and gas formed. We know that there's um, a basin that we can get down deep enough and we know there's aquifers down there and all these sorts of things. So, so, and, and we know that because of oil and gas operations. So, um, and the, and the amount of, of aquifer, the, the, the geographic area that we need below the ground is really not that big. I mean, the, um, the anomaly that we're looking at, uh, in the Denver basin, um, just outside of Greeley, um, is, Gosh, it's under the ground, it's probably 30 square miles and there's probably 300 megawatts there. So oh, for 20 years plus, you know, so it's, and above ground, if you've ever seen one of these organic Rankin power stations, they're small because you connect all the pipes and there's no steam, there's, there's no exhaust, there's no sound. Um, and so it's, uh, that they're, the environmental footprints extremely small. Maybe that uh, discussion of environmental footprint is a good pivot to kind of the the big question of policy and government relation here, because obviously power sector is very policy driven, and especially innovation in the power sector is very policy driven. So I guess I'm just curious on a high level. You know, you mentioned that there are all these opportunities anywhere. There's an oil and gas well. What has been the reception or do, do you see governments worldwide, are they interested in geothermal? Um, h- how are you seeing that perception right now? And then yeah. I want to touch on some of the U.S. specific dynamics because I think there's a lot to understand. Great question. Well. Yeah, no, uh, very positive. I mean, there's been a, a lot of renewed interest in geothermal over the last few years and um, different approaches to technology. Um uh, and so, um, and the sort of feeling that I'm, I'm getting is, you know, um, if I'm in an, uh, an, an emerging sort of, of country, I want to develop my oil and gas resources in parallel with sustainable renewal. Um, and what our approach gives you is this kind of evolutionary step rather than a revolutionary step, right? And so that's what we're seeing um, and it's more of a kind of a longer term, we'll taper off of uh, the fossil fuels as we taper into this, but let's use this for power. Um, the other thing that we're seeing a lot of is it's, it's not just grid operators, it's behind the meter folks, folks who are interested in um, making hydrogen, right? Or um, uh, the crypto mining and I mean, there's uh, data centers. And, and so there's there's quite a bit of interest behind the meters as well as grid operators. Now we'll get to the, to, to the U.S. 
um, you know, they've made a lot of, of promises that, you know, these goals out there in 10, 15 years that they're going to be net zero or better, right? And, um, and the coal plants that they have to shut down providing baseload power, uh, they can build big batteries, they can install solar, they can install wind, but geothermal gives them this, this carbon-free baseload power source that really helps the equations. Um, and then, um, so, so there's a lot of pull, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and with its, um, it, and, and there's a lot of pull even in, in places which have historically been very oil and gas minded. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. Cause so I, I guess if we'll start there, um, you know, in Texas, there was this law that sort of almost passed or was contemplated that would have raised significant restrictions on wind and solar, despite the fact that, you know, Texas is absolutely booming in wind and solar. It's booming, yeah. I, I don't know who was asking for this, but it was, you know, it was a political push <laughs> to, um, to, you know, really levy some restrictions on that. So I guess in terms of, uh, th- there's a number of questions I want to ask related to this. I guess the the first one I'll, I'll sort of ask is, this is a technology that really relies on the expertise and the knowledge of oil and gas companies, right? But the role of oil and gas companies in the energy transition is a little controversial. I mean, you've got Greentown Labs here in Boston. They invited Saudi Ramco onto their their board or whatever the relation was. And, you know, they got blasted in the news. Oh, this is greenwashing. You're just helping oil companies make more oil. I guess, how do you think about that in the context of geothermal? Maybe specifically, is that a challenge or, you know, is the accusation of greenwashing, is this something you worried about? And then a bit more broadly, I'm just curious for your thoughts on what the role that oil and gas companies should take in this next 20, 30, 40, 50 years of the energy transition. Great question. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, um, I, I think uh, it's a mixture out there. I think um, some of the companies are greenwashing, um, but um, others are recognizing that this could be a, be a very good business line for them. It complements their current business. They get to reuse their data, which is something that they all have, and it's very powerful. You know, it's worth a lot, you know, all the information that they've garnered, they get to reuse their skill sets. Um, and I've also heard that they, they can actually recruit um, uh, new folks, young geophysicists now with a promise that we're not going to be the evil oil and gas guys, that we, we're also going to do geothermal. So our approach is if, if we can show how they can make money doing this, using their data that they already have, even um, uh, their drill pads and their formations and stuff like this, this makes a lot of sense to complement their businesses, right? Um, and so we're all about longevity, which translates, we're all about cost. How do you bring the cost of power down so they can make money um, when when they do it? So that's, I mean, so that's, that's kind of the, um, I'm, we're feeling um, uh, some pull from the oil and gas op- operators. They're not fighting us. Um, uh, but where we're really seeing the pull are from the oil field services guys, like the drillers and, and um, uh, the 
folks who do all the completions below the ground, they're seeing this as a whole new business line that again, complements what they already had know how to do really well. And so we're feeling a lot of pull there. Um, and they're seeing this as, um, yeah, this, this could be a really big business that complements all the other business. So it, it's a pivot for them, right? Without a revolution, it, it's more of an evolutionary sort of thing. We can add this as a business line. We can drill geothermal wells. We can do the completions of the, these things. Even so that they're working on new binary technologies um, like organic ranking above the ground to improve the efficiencies of, of making energy from cooler water, which is key. So I don't know if that answered all your questions. Um, no, that's, that, that's very interesting. I think it's, it's good that you brought up the, uh, the issue of hiring, because this is something I think we've been hearing more and more about. I mean, even in um, my, you know, my background is material science. Hmm. And when I was an undergrad, which was not that recently, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> um, you know, we heard about constantly, like for steel mills is a very similar issue. Hmm. They had huge grants and huge uh, scholarships every year that would go unfilled because people didn't want to work in a steel mill anymore. And yeah. that was, uh, you know, less of an environmental concern, more of a sort of, I don't know, industrial um, hotness, you know, attractiveness yeah. concern. Right. But, you know, that was, that was still a time back then when being a petroleum engineer, I think, was really attractive. That was one of the things that young engineering students wanted to do. And I, I talked to some of the people we hire at Lux like these days, and it's like, there's no interest in working for an oil and gas company. Anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, if if you were helping with the climate change issues that we have and doing a pivot to electrical yeah. power that comes from geothermal energy, that's super cool. I mean, you're you're really moving the needle in a big way. And, and so, uh, um, so I... It should help them. <laughs> yeah, that, that pivot that you mentioned to generating electrical power is, it was exactly what I was, you know, thinking about like seconds before you mentioned it. Um, because if you look at an oil company like Shell, for example, they had a lot of venture investments and in utility operations. And they said, you know what, we are going to back out of this for the time being. And they actually pulled out. And so also looking or, or factoring in the fact that we are going to tap in, let's say, as an oil and gas company from these cooler aquifers, um, I don't see geothermal being sort of this heat source, but more so of a power source because the temperatures aren't high enough. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Um, so uh, maybe a couple of questions in one. I just wanted to know, do you think as an oil and gas company, you should focus on becoming a utility and also think about, okay, do we have grid connections in place to transport this power from geothermal where we can actually leverage our expertise hmm. or powering your own operations with it? That's the first part of the question. And the second one would be, do you look at an oil and gas company in a net zero future also maybe supplying geothermal heat, possibly from these aquifers? Okay, so, so back to the first comment that you made that these cooler aquifers um, are good for heat source and not power. Um, that may be the case, especially when you look at some of the loop technology that's out there that they need to slow their flow rates out so they don't conductively cool the rock off. But our aquifers that we're going after, um, which are, we started about 125 C, uh, super common, uh, 
temperature that you would see down there, but not too hot to mess with the drilling and, and stuff like that. Uh, with an organic ranking system, uh, makes plenty of power, right? So, so we're we're very much focused on electrical power now. For the oil companies, um, they have a choice, right? Just like they have a choice um, in oil and gas, are they an upstream focus where they explore and find and flip, or are they um, midstream where they transport, or are they downstream? Um, where they would maybe actually sell the power. They have a choice. But, but what's also interesting is because this is kind of a new thing, the market's wide open. I mean, what if a Halliburton wants to get into the power business? They're, they've always had trouble getting into the oil and gas business because they compete with their customers and the customers don't like that. Well, that's not happening in, in this case. So you may have a lot more players and when you start thinking about microgrids and um, and building uh, microgrid power plants for data centers or hydrogen or wh whatever you want, um, it really opens up the playing field. You know, it's, it's not dominated by the big players. What the oil and gas people have now are uh, is, is an incredible amount of data. Um, they have um, mineral rights now. Mm. That's something we haven't talked about. In some states, um, <laughs> geothermal energy is is in mineral rights, and some it's in the water rights. So in in Colorado, um, it's the water rights that um, that are aligned with the but. But the oil and gas operator has data. They have pads. They have roads. They have connections to the grid. I mean, so there, it's, it's, it's an obvious direction for them to go in, in, in my mind. And I think it's going to be a race on who makes the power, right? You know, you have, you have the ormats of the world now making power from conventional geothermal systems. Will they dominate the future or will you have new players like Schlumberger or SLB to, uh, um, to maybe take over that and, and, and expand downstream more. So it's going to be fascinating, but, um, but I think there's a lot of opportunities for all the players. Um, now we've, we've kind of touched on this as sort of a related question. Um, but what is the, the killer application or the, the best use case for geothermal? Because we've talked about, you know, you mentioned hydrogen, there are these behind the meter options, um, power, uh, for data centers, what do you see as, you know, is it an, a, even a technology where the application is that important and it's really more about, you know, the infrastructure and the siting, that kind of thing? Or are there really good specific applications where it makes a lot of sense? Great question. Yeah, I, in my mind, it's the baseload aspect of it um, that's missing from other renewables and it's carbon free, right? So, So what you could do, um, is doing almost a mixture of behind the meter generating hydrogen um, for for whatever you use trucking or, or ships or whatever right um, and then um, when the grid needs it you flip it off to the grid so this this uh, ability of of being able to to provide um, top up power when the, the demand is super high, um, I think is a killer app. 
Um, and, and when it's low, you can do other things, you know, run the cloud, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, so it's, it, it's a, uh, it's super flexible and, um, and, and it works 24 by seven. Right. And that's what I mean by base load. I mean, it's once, once you start getting the water flowing and mining the heat, it's just a constant source of power, you know, and, uh, and having that versus coal plants that you have to fire up or gas plants, you know, uh, when the, the demand goes up, um, is I think it's going to be core to our grid, you know? Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, Jim, I just want to thank mm-hmm. you so much for coming on and, uh, you know, sharing your knowledge with us is, is a really fantastic conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I enjoyed it. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research. For more, visit www.luxresearchinc.com.